Well, you might remember, turn your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, we'll be wrestling through verses 1 through 5 this morning. Uh, you might remember from two weeks ago uh, that um, whenever you end up, you start a new section in Job, one of the things he does uh, is it starts with new characters. In the very beginning of Job, he wants to introduce us to some of the main characters and the context of what is going on. And so the first five, five verses really kind of picture Job to us. And then uh, lots of the rest of chapter 1 starts introducing the throne room of God and God at work and Satan, frankly, and what he's doing. Uh, and then we start transitioning to what actually is happening. So this morning what we want to do is do some of the, the, the heavy lifting, really, of Job and understand him and how the narrator really depicts him to us and helps us to come to grips with the identity of this man that the book is ultimately named after. And ultimately, I want us to think about this really being a story worth telling. Job chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Then they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. You know, growing up in church, I'm so thankful for the sacrificial and the loving ministry uh, of so many Sunday school teachers and children's church workers that I had over the years. It was good for me as, as a boy growing up in a, in a home that went to church and uh, in a family that proclaimed that they, the belief in Christ. It was important for me to be exposed to other adults who believed the same and who were also convinced. It helped my worldview be far beyond just our home but, but bigger, and to recognize that God is at work in many people's lives in many different ways. And so I'm so thankful for those folks. I'm thankful uh, that I heard stories of David and Samson and, and heard about their strength. And uh, from Elijah to the three Hebrew boys, I, I heard of their courage. Or from Jonah to Noah, I heard of bold kind of ministry. And I remember as a little boy wanting to be like all of them, uh, wanting to have the boldness, the courage, uh, that I saw, and, and wanting to be strong in the way that God would want me to be strong. And as a little boy, that's the way I interpreted those stories. That's the way I understood them, is that I needed to be a David. I needed to be a Daniel. I needed to be like a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I needed to be uh, a Jeremiah or Elijah, and, and that's who I needed. I needed to be a Samuel, and that's who I needed to be. But I, I had this very real self-awareness that I was actually a very scared little boy. I was too scared to invite my friends to church because I might be rejected. I was too afraid to tell my little league coach why I had to leave early on Wednesday night so our family would be at midweek service so we could do boys brigade or, or prayer meeting or Awana. And, and I was afraid to tell him because of rejection. I was afraid. And so at lunchtime, I would pretend like I had seen all the same R-rated horror movies that my friends had when I was never permitted to go to those and, and fill my mind with things that I shouldn't. And so I had this constant dissonance in my heart and my mind that I felt like I was supposed to be like all these heroes, 
And I was like none of them. And yet I believed in God, and, and, and yet I, at nine years of age, I repented and put my faith in Christ. And so I'll be honest, what it left me with was a sense that I was never going to be one of the heroes. I was lucky just to be in it all. And I would be one of the guys standing on the side. I would never be a David. I would be one of those with their knees knocking, standing on the side of the valley. I wouldn't be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as much as my heart wanted to be. I would have been one of the thousands of Jews that chose not to stand up on the plain of Dura. And so how do I work through that, even growing up? Well, as I grew up and as I grew in the faith, I began to understand that I was trying to find myself in the story of the Bible in a wrong way. Well, what happens if we do that same, commit that same error with the book of Job? What happens when, what if your heart can tend to be like my heart? And, and maybe you're not, but, but I'm trusting by God and, and experience in ministry that more of you are like my heart than, than less of you. And so what if you're like my heart, and there's times you've said something like this, now this hurts, whatever it has been, whatever painful thing you're going through, maybe you're going through a painful thing, right now and it's very acute and and you and you found yourself thinking or even saying out loud this really really hurts this diagnosis this bill this relational division this this physical malady this hurts now i know i'm no job but and as a nod to our pain But really what we're confessing in that moment is our unsuitability for the lessons, the intensity of suffering, or the questions that Job has. You know, as as I've grown older and as I've spent more time in the Word and um, processed through Bible and, and invested in what does God say and how does the story of the Bible actually work, I began to realize that David and Samson were actually intended to point us to the strength of the Messiah. That Elijah and the three Hebrews pointed to the power and boldness of Christ. That Noah and Jonah pointed to the rescuer and the one who suffered death and then lived. In other words, while God can and he does through the power of his spirit give us strength and courage and boldness, he was never demanding it from me. But instead, he was rescuing me with his strength, with his courage, and with his boldness. And so as we start into the book of Job, I I would contend with you this way. If you or I cannot see ourselves in Job, we will be forever locked out of the lessons, the hope, and the comfort that Job can bring. Job is a story of wisdom meeting faith in an inexplicable suffering moment. And so we are invited into Job's story because it is our story so that you and I can find safety in God like Job did. And so we want to look at Job and see how the narrator introduces him to us and start asking ourselves questions uh, to be engaged with who this man was and, and who God has made us to be and how he has called us and how he intends us to respond so that we might glean from the book of Job every ounce of truth that he has for us. And so we can unpack Job in a couple different ways. First of all, let's unpack him as a resilient follower. Let me read verse 1 again. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz. Now, now the land of Uz, it, it, it could be anywhere from where like modern-day Syria is down to Egypt, 
through the wilderness area, maybe over to as far uh, east as where Abraham came from. In other words, nobody knows. We just know it's the ancient far east. That, that's what we know. Um, and so here we have a man in the land of Uz. His name's Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, um, I, you know, there's, there's certain words that, that you're like, what? So this week I asked my wife, I said, do you know what the word frequentative means? She said, I know it sounds like you just made up that word. <laughs> so, um, and, and it sounds like you just took the word frequent, put it with meditate, and came up with something. And, and to be honest with you, when I read the word, I was like, I, did somebody make this word up? But it's not a made-up word, and, and I don't like to throw doozy words at you. Um, I learned it this week, so this is not like some high-minded, if you were but smarter, you would have known frequentative. I, I, if you knew frequentative before you walked into this room this morning, you're amazing. Um, but, but it's one of those words that's actually important enough to understand what the narrator is saying about Job. You see, the, it's a grammar term, really. And the term frequentative is, is this huge, long word to describe something in particular. We don't really have it much in the English language. The closest we can come in the English language is things like clamber, blabber, or swaddle. That's the closest we can come. Um, each of those are unique forms of other words, right? Blabber for blab, clamber for climb, swaddle for swath. Or we might put two words together to try to get an action out of something like uh, teeter-totter or pitter-patter. That's kind of the closest we can come. What we're trying to describe is a repeated action over time. It doesn't really exist in English language anymore other than those few examples, and there might be about a dozen other kind of words that we do that with. Um, because we would say it this way, if we had a friend and he lived in New York City, and we were to say, boy, I've heard the traffic is horrible, how do you get to work? And he, said, and he just said this, oh, I walk to work. Or he said, I take the subway to work. We assume he didn't mean he took the subway that day or he walked that day, but that he does that every day. That's just the way we work. But other languages, ancient Hebrew being one, Russian being another, Turkish being another, they don't have that. And so they use what's called a frequentative, and it's a kind of tense that they'll put on an adjective or a verb at times, and they can even use it with nouns, that communicate, actually, this is an action that is repeated over and over and over and over and over. This is the same behavior that happens over a long period of time. We would say it if I took my little boy to the park and I watched him climb the monkey bars. And we might in our English language think, oh, did he just climb them once? But, but if we said, I took my boy to the park and he was clambering all over the monkey bars, like, oh. Okay, he was climbing up and down all over those things. And that's what the narrator of Job is saying about Job's righteousness. When it says that this man was blameless and upright, he uses this very unique grammar style of frequentative. And so it's telling us something very specific about Job. It's telling us that Job's faith, Job's outworking of his faith, was consistent, was disciplined, was stable. You could see it over a long period of time. I like how Eric Ortland just kind of boils down this concept of this blamelessness and uprightness and this fearing of God. And it's all just trying really to describe a person who loves God and obeys him. That's ultimately what it boils down to. And so Eric Ortland puts it this way, fearing God is an Old Testament way to summarize a reverent, obedient relationship with God lived out in practical ways. 
That's what it's saying about Job. Now, here's the question we have to ask. Why then use frequentative? Does that even matter to us? And it absolutely does because it points to resilience. The ability to recover from or withstand difficult circumstances is what resilience means. Resilience is the response to trials that endurance produces. So you go through something very difficult, if it's brief, if it's acute, there's not really resilience required. Going in and getting a shot doesn't really require resilience. Watching my wife go in almost every week and get blood drawn and shot after shot after shot, after that's resilience, right? Running 100 yards is not resilience. Running 32 miles is resilience. And so resilience is this aspect, it's, it's a product of endurance. It's a response to trials that lets you withstand or recover from difficult circumstances. Now, now, we've learned as a church, particularly through Corinthians and other texts, that endurance, spiritual endurance, is built over time. And it comes through difficult trials. That not everyone experiences trials rightly. You can go through a trial as a believer and respond wrongly. You can run from it. You can can hide from it. You can self-medicate through it. You can be like like Sarah in a moment of her intense trial who can no longer stand the burden of the prophecy that she would produce a son. She's now in her old age. She's been infertile her her whole life. And so she finds another way to try to fulfill so she can lift the burden that she feels like she's living under. Do you ever feel like God has put a demand on you that you cannot meet? And your heart starts questing for a different way to find the answer. That's another way we can run from trials. But resilience is this product of spiritual endurance. As the trial goes on for a long time, that you keep responding rightly. Uh, you, You stay under the trial. You let, as James says, patience or endurance have its perfect maturing work. And part of the product of that in a person's life, a believer's life, as they respond correctly to trials, is resilience. And so for the narrator to use this about Job, he is telling us something incredibly important about who Job is as a man. We're jumping into this moment in Job's life, this season of Job's life, and this is the background, and he is using language, and we're kind of like turning a black and white TV and making it color, that is telling us so much about Job. It's telling us there's a whole lifetime of faithful living, not just in this moment. Job has always and for a long time been a man who walked with God. It matters because this is a pattern of Job's life, not just a season of his life. I think there's lots of us, if we were really honest, we could look at our lives and say, I had this particular season where I just was so close with God. I ran the race well. And we can look back and and we're looking back because there's a part of us that's like, but I haven't been running well lately. Or maybe I've gotten sidetracked. I remember when we would do camp ministry and you'd have 10 weeks of camp, you'd have your staff there for 12 weeks total, two weeks of staff training, then 10 weeks of camp. And it's a unique experience. It's a unique environment. I mean, you're working 60, 80 hours a week. It's crazy. 
everything you're doing is ministry. It's constant pressure spiritually. Uh, you're praying for kids, serving kids, uh, losing sleep, sitting under multiple uh, different Bible lessons a day, usually a chapel in the morning, a, a sermon in the evening, multiple different preachers for 12 weeks. And it was not uncommon, particularly your, your main staff are college-age students. It was not unusual that you'd start getting to the end of the summer and these kids would start admitting they'd never been so consistent in their devotions because, frankly, you end up desperate. You're dealing with these really 10 annoying campers and you realize you can't just explode in the flesh, you need Jesus. And so they're getting up early, and they're like, man, I've never been so faithful in my devotions. I've, I've never been seeing God at such a work in my life. I've never seen firsthand him just change somebody's heart. He's changing my heart. And we would get to the end of the summer, and we would start to tell them, just so you're aware, this isn't the norm. And who you are two weeks from now is who you really are, not who you've been for the last 12. And it was not uncommon, we would then go to Bible colleges to recruit camp or, or more counselors. It was not uncommon, we'd get back to these colleges September, October time to recruit, and we'd find out they left camp and it turned into flesh, flesh 3,000. Because there was no more pressure. Nobody was demanding you. Nobody was putting law on you anymore. You must be here, you must do this, you must act this, you must read this, you must do this. And in the absence of all the fences... What their heart really wanted exploded. Resilience is the product of endurance, of staying under trial. It doesn't mean you're perfect. There's ups and downs. You're learning endurance because you're learning to keep running to Jesus no matter how bad it hurts. Marathon righteous living is, has learned things like this, that it isn't my feelings that must drive my worship, but discipline. If you wait to read your Bible and worship until you feel like it, then prepare yourself for an apathetic, lukewarm Christianity. But endurance and resilience teaches you that you spend time with God when you don't feel like it. And there's other times you, you carve out time in your schedule. I'm going to spend time with God, and I'm not, not going to put a start time, but I'm not going to put an end time because I'm going to stay with Jesus until my heart is engaged with Jesus. These are hard lessons, and nothing teaches a person those lessons better than sorrows and trials and difficulties. And so when the narrator is telling us this frequentative grammar tool, it's not just a cool word that Steve learned and wants to share. It's pointing to a pattern of Job's life for a long time. And so it, he's learned things like this. There's a discipline to seek the living water when you're dry spiritually. But you don't feel that thirsty for the Word. And instead, what we want to do is we want to reach for what the world offers to slate our thirst for life. And so we want to, we want to reach out for more sleep, another drink, a pill, food, exercise, entertainment, all these things that God intends as kind gifts, we can make them into self-medicating means of running from pain. Instead, Job has lived a long time in a way that flees from idolatry. Not that Job didn't fight, because you don't learn endurance by always being successful. And you and I will learn far more from our failures than we ever will from our successes. And so it's telling us a lot about the kind of life Job has lived. Job has not lived a life absent of trials. He must have had the existence of trials to have learned this kind of resilience. The narrator is setting the stage for us about Job by letting us know he's a mature man of faith, who has lived out that faith 
in a visible way. Job is a resilient follower of God. And so I just want to ask you, do you, can you identify with Job here a little bit? What is the pattern of your life and what, what is the pattern of my life? Is it marked by increasing endurance? Remember, when the father came broken to Jesus to heal his poor little boy who was possessed of a demon. Jesus looks at him and says, if you have faith, he can be healed. And the dad looks up at Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Always remember that Jesus deals kindly with us in the midst of our sufferings and our trials. He deals tenderly with us. He deals lovingly with us, patiently with us. But he is also always directing us, calling us to his side instead of to the fake and empty gods of this world. You see, I'm convinced in the midst of my trials, in the midst of most people's trials and suffering, they want all the the balm of Gilead. They want all the calming. They want all the patience. They want all the loving. They want all the hugging. But what they never want is the truth. And listen, a good doctor puts their arm around you when they give you a bad diagnosis. But they also give you truth about what the diagnosis means, any cures and aids available, any hope that they can, and truth. That's a good doctor. And Jesus is the great physician, and he comes into our sorrows and into our sufferings and calls us to his side, calls us away from the fake and empty gods of this world. And so Jesus immediately looked upon this boy when the dad cries out, I believe, help my unbelief, and he cast the demon out of him. The point is this, resilience is not presented as a state we arrive at, but a pattern that develops. The resilience of an 11-month-old learning to walk looks very different than the resilience of a 92-year-old struggling with a cane, which looks very different from the resilience of a recovering coma patient or traumatic brain injury patient who is relearning to walk again. And yet all of them are resilience. We tell the little 11-month-old, get up, get up, come here, here, walk to mommy, walk to daddy. We shake the favorite toy or some children their favorite snack. We encourage the 92-year-old, keep walking. As long as you can be mobile, it's better for you. Keep walking. You can do it. Keep coming. Keep coming. We cheer on through a physical therapist and a loved one as someone with a traumatic brain injury or coming out of a coma and they're trying to walk again. They used to walk. Maybe they used to run. And we say, keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. This is where resilience comes from. They're all resilience, the one who's learning. So you could be here this morning and be very young in the faith. And God is teaching you resilience. You could be very old in the faith and God is teaching you resilience or you could be one who you feel like you were walking strong and now you've been debilitated and God is saying, come on. Resilience is a pattern of life that is developed by, marked by running from the putrid sewage of idols like wealth and toys and relationships, respect and acceptance, sensuality, vulgarity, anger, or passions, resilience is running to the pure water of endurance in Christ. And so Job is a resilient follower. But Job's also a visible follower. I was so encouraged by this. And and so (laughs) the narrator almost humorously gives us this grocery list of the wealth and the blessings of Job. Verses 2 through 5. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 
500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was greatest of all the people of the East. Now, this is, this is interesting to us because he breaks down these wealth and blessings to us. And, and he's telling us that, that when you looked at Job, his reputation and his visible identity matched this inner reality of his spiritual condition. And that is setting the stage for some important theology as we'll progress through the book. It's absolutely the case that Job's walk matched his talk. Uh, his actions didn't drown out his words, they mirrored his words. What Job claimed to believe, he lived. Job's faith, we can think of it this way, was made evident by his works before the law ever came, just like Romans tells us Abraham's was faith was made evident by his works before the law ever came. And so it's obvious that Job is a follower of the one true God, and we see it with his wealth and blessings. So, so let's talk about some of these numbers, because they are interesting, they are fascinating, right? Uh, numbers matter symbolically to some degree in the Bible. Most people take them way too far. But they matter in the Bible, and they actually mattered in ancient Near Eastern literature as well, particularly numbers like 7, 3, and 10. And so in the Bible, let me just give you some examples. You, you don't need to write all these down. And um, not all of us have grown up in church. Those that have, you'll recognize some of these stories. Those that haven't, feel free to look these up later. Um, but you don't need them all. Uh, in the Bible, for example, seven shows up with Abraham. Abraham offers seven lambs to Abimelech. Jacob serves seven years for his first wife, then seven years for his second. Uh, there are seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine in Joseph's dreams and in reality. Three, the number three shows up a lot. It shows up how many visitors come to Abraham when they're promising him of an heir. Uh, the number of Noah's sons, how long Moses was hidden by Pharaoh's daughter. Ten, ten shows up quite a few times in the Bible as well. It's the number of Joseph's brothers who go down to and come back from Egypt. It's the lowest number of souls that Abraham argues with God about to try to spare Sodom. If there's only ten, God. It's how many camels are used by Eleazar to see Rachel's faithfulness when he's looking for a wife for Jacob. And it's not just in the Bible, and this is important to understand when, when you're studying the Bible, it's also literature. It's God's word. Uh, it's God-inspired. It's, it's the inherent word of God. But it's also taking place culturally. And in ancient Near Eastern literature, these numbers also showed up significantly. Uh, Baal and Mot are said that they have seven pages that serve them. Niobe, who's the prototype of a grieving mother, had seven sons and daughters. Three shows up even in, in Greek mindset. Three furies, three gorgons, three graces. And so how are we to take these? Well, many people go far, way too far. Well, since three is tied to the Trinity, anytime we see three, it's always pointing to the Trinity, and that's what happened, and not necessarily. Uh, seven is the number of perfection, and so every time we see seven, that's why there's seven days of the week, and there's this... Yes and no sometimes. Ten is this. And, and, so, and so how are we to take them? Well, when we understand them biblically and culturally, we can go back through these numbers. Job has seven sons. And he has three daughters. And that adds to ten. The narrator tells us he has these 7,000 camels and 3,000 sheep, adding up to 10,000. He has 1,000 oxen and female donkeys when you add them together. It stands out, though, some things that the narrator leaves out of the numeric uh, agenda here or accounting. Uh, he doesn't specify, uh, he, he tells us, leaves out how many male donkeys there are. 
He uses 500 yoke of oxen to get up to the thousand number, and the yoke there could have been anywhere from two to four oxen together. But he's using these numbers specifically. He doesn't specify the number of servants. Why does he leave some things out and put other things in? Well, all of it is to understand what he says, best what he says next, that Job was the greatest of all the people of the East. The narrator is using language, cultural norms, and numbers to say this. Job had the ideal family. That's what he's communicating. Uh, Not that it was perfect in the sense that there was never a problem. Not that it was perfect in the sense that um, the very day that one camel died, another one was born, so you maintained 7,000. Not in that way. He is using cultural language to say Job had it all. Uh, We used to, very old slang, we used to say sarcastically about someone, oh, she thinks she's all that and a bag of chips. Uh, Because that's your combo meal, right? In other words, it's a perfect, it's ideal, it's all together. That's what the narrator's saying, is that others would have looked at Job and said he has the idyllic family, the ideal wealth, the ideal influence, the ideal family. Job had every reason to be happy. Now, even more interesting is the fact that the wife is left out of it at this moment. Um, Why? Because she wasn't a part of the family? No, she was clearly a part of the family. Because the narrator is specifically communicating a way to make a bigger point about the wife later. And so here's what it is. You looked at Job, and anybody that with a coveting heart would have said, I want what Job has. But even anybody with just an appreciative heart would have said things like, oh, I wish I could have had children like Job did. Or I wish my flocks had done as well as Job's had. I wish that my servants were as loyal as Job's were. I wish that my children were the way Job's children were. And it created a kind of an ideal picture and image. And, and, and here's the truth. Have you ever been in a season of suffering and be tempted? And, and I, absolutely, I think we can go down a road of coveting. Right? But then I think we can also have desires that are short of coveting. That can be righteous desires. You, you look at an infertile couple. I wish God would give me children like so-and-so's children. Or I, I wish God would give me a spouse like so-and-so has a spouse. Or I wish God would give me friendships, relationships, success like so-and-so has. In other words, everybody around Job would have looked at Job, and his reputation, his name was one of righteousness and blamelessness, but his reputation and his name was also as one who is idyllic. But Job doesn't just sit on these. Job uses them. And he stewards his gifts. In Job 29, later in the book, and the narrator doesn't tell us it here, but it's important for us to see this, how does Job view his wealth? He doesn't view them as the end of the means. In other words, Job didn't view the ten children and all the camels and sheep and oxen as the goal, but he saw them as a means to an end to steward them. In Job 29, this is only one of two passages where Job kind of grocery lists this. He says, when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. He's talking then, my reputation, my influence was this, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had done none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. 
I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Job is an astounding picture of what James talks about, the truth of faith and works. Tell me you have faith, show me your works. And in James, he particularly points to the way you would deal with the poor and the oppressed and the stranger. Do you look at them and say, be warm and filled, go be clothed? Or do you look at them and see them as someone that God has brought into your life and into your sphere of influence for you to take care of? I love the one even later here when it says in verse 16, I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And the action there is that when Job might hear a story about somebody, he's never met them, he doesn't know them, but suddenly he's made aware of their need. Job recognizes, I sit on all these camels and sheep and oxen and wealth and power and influence, and so if God's given me that and he's brought this story to my awareness, then God wants me, he's calling me to find them and help them. Job's like a proto-gospel guy, right? Job's like Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Job didn't need 66 books of the Bible to inform him that people who follow the one true God are loving, generous, stewarding people. Job understood that that's exactly what he should be doing. But why would Job do it? Why would he be burdened this way well job 31 23 at the end of the other grocery list moment from job he says this i was in terror of calamity from god and i could not have faced his majesty there's two truths there and we'll unpack one of those about retribution or retributive theology in just a moment that's that you get what you pay for you sow you reap but the other one is when he says i could not have faced his majesty job understood what we understand as believers that we are stewards and the one we give an account to is god my watch and my wallet are not mine they're his what am i going to do with them because he's going to ask me for them one day and paul says i and and Excuse me, Job is saying, I could not face his majesty. Now, I just want to point out how stunning it is then that with this grocery list of what Job does, and no one disagrees with him. Job's not lying here, and he's not exaggerating. How many people come to Job in the midst of his sorrow? Where are all the poor that he has helped? Where are all the sick that he has cared for? Where are all the orphans he has delivered? Where are all the widows he has blessed? Where are the blind that he has led along? Where are the lame that he has helped? Where are the afflicted who were being ruled over by some evil warlord of injustice that Job was actually willing to go to war on their behalf and deliver them? Where are all these people? It's an amazing reality that in the midst of suffering that already feels lonely, how common it is to be abandoned by people that you've helped. 
And there's actually no greater picture of that than Christ. With thousands who follow him, thousands who are with him, he gets to the cross, he's got one disciple, his mom, and a few other ladies. And the rest are screaming, kill him. And so Job doesn't just steward his wealth, though. He stewards the gifts of relationships. There's a unique blessing semi-hidden in these verses about Job's family life. He has ten grown kids who gather for probably up to a week, uh, ten times a year to celebrate their birthdays. Now, that is an unusual sense of family belonging and harmony. Um, And all of us have grown up in homes, and we know that would have to be unusual. Ten kids, everybody getting along, and they like each other enough and enjoy one another enough that ten times a year, right, Here's Joe Ash's birthday week. Let's all drop what we're doing to go celebrate Joe Ash's birthday. And we're all going to get together and we're going to sing and we're going to enjoy and we're going to delight and we're going to celebrate Joe. And that's the thing. We're so thankful Joe Ash is in our family. We're so thankful for this one. We're going to celebrate Rebecca over here and we're going to just honor her. And oh, we're so excited. And, and this happens 10 times a year that everybody gets together. Now, now the truth is this. Parents can destroy sibling harmony for sure. We know that, and there are so many sad stories that way. It's evident that Job and his wife haven't done that. Their role in their children's lives, uh, through God's grace and, and maturity and obedience, has not destroyed sibling harmony. But we also know that a parent can have their best efforts, and children can destroy the harmony and unity of relationships as well. And it's God's immense kindness that this has not been the case. I was reading down through uh, a funny Twitter feed the other day about siblings, and it's so pictured, uh, so many of my sibling relationships growing up. And uh, one of them, I thought of it, said, me, quote, my brother is so annoying. Somebody else, your brother is so annoying. Me, I'm going to kill you now, right? Like, like. Um, the only one who gets to hurt my brother is me, right? You don't touch my brother. Um, that was certainly my brother and my relationship for many years when I was growing up. I, first time I got in trouble at school was in kindergarten fighting his bully. And then we would go home and fight like cats and dogs. It was like, you don't touch my brother. It's on, right? And, and so siblings can destroy this. And so this is just a kind gift from God. Like, we understand that because we understand humanity. We understand that this is God's sweet mark on this family. This family clearly loves to be together, to celebrate each other, and enjoy God's gift of each one of them. The fact that this surrounds birthdays, and that's when they're killed, only adds to the sorrow and the depth of Job's despair. And it only adds to it when the day that Job curses is the own day of his birth. But for here, at the start... We have Job taking spiritually respons- spiritual responsibility for his children. And when they would finish par- parting, when the days of feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there is a pointing there to something deeper theologically. We'll cover that here in about maybe five minutes. But just to point out Job's stewardship of his wealth and his blessings, but also the gift of his family, can I ask you again, are you in the story? 
What is the visible testimony of your life? What will you be known for? You know, we live in a, in a world of cravings and, and of a culture that just frankly, we all just came out of a, a year or so of being told, be self-protective where the gospel calls us to be sacrificial. Hoard, where the Bible calls us to be generous. Do what's best for you when the Bible calls us to do what's best for our neighbor. And it's hard when our flesh and the world and what we're told to do agree. I just want to remind us, though, that we will answer ultimately. And we must be considering the stewardship of our lives, of our goods and our things, but also of our relationships. Is it evident, and I think only, I think only good friends who would confront us, <laughs> I think only the Spirit through the Bible and frankly, humility before it to be willing to be examined can do this. But, but before God, would, would you be content facing God today to answer for how you steward your things and your relationships? Do you operate the way Job did? And I think in this way, Job's righteousness points us to a stunning reality. Job knew he would stand before a majestic God. And so he understood I must steward these. Are you in the story? And Job, so Job was a resilient follower. Job was a visible follower, but Job was also a normal follower. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Kryptonite. Kryptonite showed up in 1943. Kryptonite and Superman, we all know Kryptonite's what, what kills him, makes him weak. Kryptonite, think of it this way, makes the Superman just a man. Well, Kryptonite only came about because the radio, there was a radio Superman broadcast. Um, that, that none of you <laughs> are old enough to have listened to. But it was a radio broadcast. Well, the guy who voiced Superman got a cold, and he couldn't talk. And so like, uh-oh, we can't produce the weekly broadcast. What do we do? Well, to cover up his gravelly voice in the cold, they introduced kryptonite. Oh, no, Superman got exposed to kryptonite. It weakened him. Well, then it became a strong part of the whole storyline of Superman, something that takes someone super and makes them relatable suddenly. And they're not Superman. He's just a man. Well, how often have you thought, like maybe my own heart, this trial, this pain, this suffering is so hard. This hurts so bad. I mean, I know I'm no Job. But this just is killing me. Now, what do we mean when we think or say that? I'm no Job. And, and I will say this to you experientially experientially up until this point working through job my vast experience is this people who claim to feel like job should not and people who do who do or people who do claim to be like job should not and people who don't probably should because i would remind you job's suffering is inexplicable suffering it's not suffering that's the result of sin You can look at sin, and there's the consequence in this one. That's not what Job is. Job didn't earn this. 
This wasn't intended to even grow Job. Job doesn't grow through the journey. He increases in knowledge and information, but you get to the end, and God actually says this about Job, and all the things he has said he did not send. This is the kind of suffering you didn't invite, you didn't deserve, you didn't bring about by your own actions. You can't point to a cause other than living in a sin-fallen world. And so how can we identify with Job? So I think lots of times when we say, I'm no Job, I think we mean it in two ways. First of all, I think we mean this, I'm no Job in righteousness and blamelessness. Right, so ultimately God's going to say, have you considered my Job? There's none like him on the earth. We have the narrator saying here how righteous and blameless he was. And so I think lots of times when we say I'm no Job, we're acknowledging I'm more of a sinner than Job is. I think that's what we're saying. I think secondarily when we say things like I'm no Job, is we're admitting we have not suffered to the same extent. I mean, he loses ten children and everything. There's the acute betrayal of his, of his wife out of her sorrow. And I just want to be gracious to her because she lost 10 kids and everything also. And so there's all this suffering, and there's all this pain, and I think lots of times when we say, I'm no Job, we're admitting, we're confessing, I'm not right as righteous as Job, but also I have not suffered as much as Job. And I want you to know at the very start of Job, Job's life, Job is far more like you than he is like Jesus. Now, that's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's the truth. If we were to say it this way, if we were to say that, that this is where I'm standing is normal humanity. And I need to take a trip to be like Jesus. How far does Steve Johns need to go to be like Jesus? How much change needs to happen in Steve Johns' life to be like Jesus? I'd argue the distance from here to the moon and back. Or more. There's so much about me that's not like Christ. So even if Job is further on the journey, how far is he? If we zoom out, the reality is Job is far more like us than he is even like Christ. Job's not perfect. Job's not sinless. The story of Job is not intended to distance us from the lessons of inexplicable suffering, but to bring us into it. And the longer we look at Job's life as though he's not us, what we actually end up doing is we miss out on the stories. The fact is Job's faithfulness and his righteousness and his blamelessness are actually intended to help us so that when we will see Job question, we will see Job sorrow, and we will see Job struggle, it is intended, listen now, to give us freedom to question, sorrow, and struggle. And as long as you or I are toward our own hearts, or, or hear me now, to the hearts of another suffering believer, as long as we think I'm no Job or they're no Job, we are locking the doors, we are shutting the book on their sorrow, their questions, their struggles, or even the hope that they are intended to receive. I want to kindly encourage you to stop saying, I'm no Job. I just want to edify you that way. I want to encourage you. Stop saying that. But now that, that's like one of those 
preaching third person moments. Right? Steve, stop saying that because when you're doing that, you're removing from yourself the opportunity to process through grief, sorrow, and struggles. And at 47, I've lived far too long processing well through grief and struggles. It's exhausting. And I'm tired of trying to pretend that I'm so strong it doesn't matter. It does. And sometimes, and you know this to be true, life stinks. And it hurts a lot. And the narrator is inviting us into Job's story. Now, let's look then at Job's theology here a little bit. Remember, just reminder, retribution. What does that mean? So now, man, I got two doozy words. They're just not fair, right? Frequentative and retribution. That's wrong. Retribution is important. Retribution, just remind you, is the narrator, and the narrator is setting up this theme for us. Retribution is the idea, what we sow, we reap. Do good, be blessed. Do bad, get cursed. Steal that brownie, get a spanking, right? <laughs> um, this past week, rented a Mustang. Aaron and I are driving the Mustang. Some wonderful moments. 70 degrees, sunny, top down, radio blaring, sunglasses on, enjoying our time. So I had to find a side street because I was not interested in Florida State Police having a personal interaction with Steve. So I had to find a side street, came out of the side street, knew my son wasn't expecting it, had the radio cranked, had it in sport mode. So I hit the side street, I cut the wheel to the left, so I fishtailed and swung that bad boy around because that's what you do when you drive a Mustang. On a side street in a perfectly safe area apart from police, and I'm not encouraging wicked behavior, right? Why? Because I'm also Steve Johns, who used to drag race and do terrible, stupid things in cars, and I actually had to go back to driver's school for a while. Do bad, get punished. Retribution. Well, Job has this strong retributive idea of the way the world works. Job is so blessed, the narrator is setting us up for this concept, that Job's blessings are the result. This is the way Job thinks and everyone else thinks. Job's blessings are the result of his faithfulness. He has the 7,000 camels and the 10 kids and all the wealth and the good name, and he has the ability to rescue the, the, unrighteous, the, the, the people that are being treated unjustly and to care for the blind and the needy. Listen, his kid, they're so wealthy, his kids take 10 weeks off a year to party. He has all that because he walks with God. If I, you know what? So I, if I walked with God better, boom, I'd have all these things. Or, 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 like Job thought, I have all these things because I do walk with God. And you'd have them too if you walked with God. And Job, this is his heart. And this is what the narrator's doing. The narrator, by his structure, he starts with Job's spiritual condition before he starts telling you all of his blessings. The, nature, the, the narrator is preparing us for the story of the book of Job. So the narrator by structure, Job's friends by their statements, because they're going to say the same things later. Job himself and his question of God, they all believe that these blessings are the result of a faithful life. We see it even clearer when we go back to why Job says he's sacrificing for his kids. Look at that. He says, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
That's an interesting phrase there when it talks about cursing God in their hearts. Job is basically giving the full width and breadth of sin. You have sin over here, and the worst kind of sin that you could do would be cursing God. And Job is aware of this, that that could even happen internally in your hearts that no one else has known or seen. And so Job's not just aware of visible sins, anger, lust on fire, whatever. But Job's concerned about internal sins. How would Job even be aware of that? Because Job has lived life. And he knows there's lots of things that you, do, you and I do where we sin in our desires. We sin in our thought life. We sin in our mind. We sin in what we want that no one else knows. And we're terrified of the concept of every idle word even being revealed one day. And Job is afraid that even a sin in your heart might lead to God ripping all these things from you and you actually then being punished. And so he wants to address those. Job is convinced, like from the books of Proverbs later and Ecclesiastes later, that if you do right, you'll do well, and if you sin, you won't. The way you should deal with sin is confession and repentance, whether people know it or they don't know it. In other words, Job is every single one of us in this room who knows God. And the fact is, God tells us that largely that is exactly how the world works. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is at the core of all the wisdom and literature books. This is at the core of the deep gold mine of truth that we're going to need to learn from Job. So here's the question. What happens when that mechanism, that formula, seems broken? What happens when there's suffering and sorrow that's undeserved? What do we say to that child who has suffered horribly at the hands of a parent or another adult or authority figure? What do we say to them? What do we say to parents who loved and poured into their child, did the best they knew how, nobody's perfect, and then their child's a prodigal? We say to the person who has done the best they can to take care of the the body that God gave them, the earth suit, and then they get this horrible diagnosis. What do we say when the suffering is undeserved? And this seems broken. This is where we are being invited into Job's story. We might see ourselves in his struggles. Don't try to rise above Job's struggle or avoid the journey through the dark valley, through the night of tears, or through the painful process. You can't jump to chapter 42 of Job and say you're good. Find yourself in Job when you are in inexplicable, unexplainable pain. Now, lastly, we'll be done. It says that Job is this blameless and upright man. This does not mean that Job is a sinless man. Job knows this about himself. We know this theologically. There was one sinless man ever, and it's Jesus Christ. Job knows the danger of sins, both hidden and visible. Job walks circumspectly because he's aware of his own weaknesses. He's resilient because he has grown and growth comes through success and failure. On the road from infancy to maturity and righteous self-evaluation and humble confession, we need to remember that this is wisdom literature. In Proverbs, the contrast is either you're wise or you're foolish. In Ecclesiastes, it's either life or death, good or bad. 
wisdom literature comes into our life, and so it portrays Job as blameless and upright because this is what the narrator is screaming at us. Job didn't deserve any of it. Job didn't need these things to make him godly. He already walked with God. He didn't earn it by sin, and this wasn't intended for his sanctification. This wasn't condemnation or wrath. Find yourself in Job when you're in inexplicable pain. These five verses are so critical to our understanding and application of Job, both to our own lives and to the lives of our friends and loved ones. If Job is some distant figure, far more blessed, far more righteous, far more mature than you and I, it kills the true worth of the book for us. Job is the picture of a growing and mature believer in God who's serious about his faith and stewarding life. His life does call us to maturity. His life does call us to integrity, but not in a way that makes the lessons of his life not for my life or yours or others. David, Samson, Noah, Elijah, and Jonah all pointed us not to who we could be or should be necessarily, but to the perfect king, to the perfect judge, to the perfect patriarch, to the perfect priest, to the perfect prophet. They all pointed us to this, we all need Jesus. Those three Hebrew boys meet Jesus in the fires of the furnace in the moment of their greatest vulnerability, mingled with a degree of self-awareness when they say God might save us. Job brings us to the one who doesn't break a bruised reed. Job brings us to the one who doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick or crush the broken. Instead, Job reminds us that God will draw near to the brokenhearted, that God does give the healing balm. He draws us close in the dark valley. He gives us faith in our neediness. Let Job bring you to Jesus instead of thinking somehow that you are insufficient to receive the grace that God had for Job. Now, I know that that word is not for every person in this room. There may be some of you who are like, I've never wrestled with those insecurities. But I've got to tell you, I've pastored and ministered long enough to know that the vast majority of Christians do. And I want you to know that Job, God so knew how humanity would work and wrestle that the very first book he ever wrote was to come into the life of hurting people that he might minister grace to them. And I want you on our journey for Job, for my own heart and for yours, to realize that we're invited into Job's story because it is our story, so we can find safety in God like he did. Father, we ask that you would teach us from Job. Father, would you teach us patiently and gently? Father, we need that gentleness and the kindness, and we are grateful for it. Father, my own heart this week has needed to be awakened to your kindness. And you've been doing that good work this week, and I thank you for it. Lord, I pray for the hurting this morning, inexplicable pain, unexplainable sorrow, not earned, not deserved. Father, not a result of sin, not even necessarily maybe intended to sanctify them. Father, they need Job. They don't need me, they need Job. They need your grace through Job. Lord, would you teach us, would you just take me out of the picture of it and so that all we hear and see is you through the life of the servant. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.